You know, something happened in, in the 90s, and um, I think it was a response to something that was happening in the 80s. In the 80s, I think there was just kind of a, a, um, a, a big dispensational, heavy uh, hell house kind of repent or else kind of theology that was going in the church in the 80s, a lot of that was happening. And so I think what happened in the 90s is the response the other direction was that there were a lot of people who wanted to come in and create a church kind of structure, a church feeling that was very, and the term they used was seeker sensitive. Y'all ever heard that term? They wanted to make the church so that it felt really warm and fuzzy for outsiders. And so we quit seeing steeples and pillars and we started seeing, uh, in, they would go into like a, a, a mall and they would put a church in, in a strip mall or something like that. And, and, and then what started happening is that um, instead of preaching from scripture, they started, you know, they might say a scripture at the beginning to introduce an idea. And then the, the pastor would kind of freestyle his ideas on what that scripture would mean and tell stories about his life and pop culture for 30 minutes. And, and then the music got to where um, instead of encouraging the people to sing in the pews, we would darken the, the, the pews so it felt like a show and we would put spotlights on the stage and it, it became to where it wasn't about the people of God singing, it was about a performance that happened up on stage. And so... Um, we, we saw that as a reaction to what had been happening in the 80s. It happened in the 90s. And I think that the long-term reaction of having a seeker-focused church, a, a, a church where, where, where the focus of the attention was on making non-Christians feel comfortable, what we, what we unintentionally did was make it so that we didn't train Christians by the Word of God. We so, we so were hesitant in, in using the Word of God in Scripture that we had a whole generation of believers who, for the sake of not offending people, we, we just didn't equip them. And then our children didn't understand what we were about, and then they left the church. And so, so here's what we're saying as a church. Here's what we're about. We believe that the worship service this, this time is for the Christian. It is for the church. It is, listen, if you're a seeker, if you don't know that, you are so welcome to be here. But when we focus, when we, when we design our worship service, it is for the church to glorify and magnify Christ. It, it is so that the Word of God can be so dug into that, that it becomes the center of what we do in worship, that we feed our people by the Word. And so we don't just read one scripture, and then I don't tell a bunch of stories about my life and jokes. And it, like We really try to be equipped by walking through the Word of God very thoroughly. Now, we, we, we highly value evangelism at this church. In fact, we've been working so that on February 12th, which is a Saturday of next year, we're going to be hosting an evangelism training weekend. I know of five churches already that have, that have said they are bringing people and going to be part of what we are hosting here at Lakeside, but it is a one-day Saturday, uh, 9 to 3 o'clock event focused on how to share your faith with others. And so we highly focus on evangelism. We love evangelism. The whole reason we're having this out here is, is so that people have a way to bring people in. But that being said, what we do right now is to equip the saints. We, we, we think the center of our worship service is Christ Jesus, and the center is his revealed word. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going we're gonna to really look and be centered on God's word. And um, what we're doing is we're working our way through the gospel of Matthew. And we've taken quite a long time to do so. And we took last week off to talk about deacons, but we're back again. And so I want to take just a moment and get you back into the context in your mind of Matthew's gospel. First off, the most central theme in Matthew's gospel is what? It's this idea 
that Jesus is the great king of kings. Like, like if you looked at that video we played, we just got the crown. We wanted to, 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 to communicate that maybe the most central thing in all of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the great king of kings. And uh, as we get to the ninth chapter of Matthew, we get this picture of Jesus, and he's looking out over Israel. Okay? He's seeing all these people, and Jesus' heart breaks for Israel. Look at it with me. Matthew 9, 36. We'll read it. It says this. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He's looking out over Israel because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so now Jesus, this king, is, is presented as a compassionate king who's come. And Jesus sees that the, it says that he sees that the harvest is plentiful, plenty of, plenty of people there, but the laborers are few. And so what happens next in, in, in Matthew's gospel is that he sends his disciples into short-term missions to go out into the area and to proclaim what? The same message that John's been proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. And all the while, you need to know that the Jesus is he's doing incredible miracles. He, he's doing supernatural things, things that cannot be explained and, and one thing I think is just very important for us all to understand is that these miracles, they act as Jesus' credentials, okay? Uh, he, like, Jesus doesn't have a badge that he pulls out that says Messiah on it. He doesn't have a badge to show he's the Messiah. His miracles are his credentials. He's, he's healing people. He's bringing people back to life. And if you pause the story right there, and you might ask, well, What happened? What happened when Jesus showed his credentials of these miracles? How did people respond? What do the people do when they experience King Jesus? Do you know what the answer is? They reject him. They reject Jesus. They reject his kingship. They reject his compassion. And I can tell you this, that um, every man or woman who encounters Jesus will have a reaction to him. And much of what we see in Matthew, much of the, kind of the, the gospel of Matthew, it's a recording for us, for, for the church, of, of the reactions that people have towards Jesus. It just records how people react to him. And, and Jesus, he's been in Galilee. And it's funny, Jesus, I don't know, he left Nazareth probably about a year ago, as our narrative would, would have it. He left Nazareth, and he went and he made his home in the coastal city of Capernaum. And, and he's done so many miracles there in Capernaum, just a lot. He's been a year doing these miraculous things. He's healed so many people out of compassion, yet they, they just don't believe in Capernaum. Look, look with me at what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty three. 23. He says this. He's talking to Capernaum. He's talking to the crowd there. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? And he, he kind of has a prophecy for them. He says, you will be brought down to Hades. It's an oracle. For the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. You know, if, if, if I had done all that I'd done for you in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is what he's saying to the people of Capernaum. Jesus has made it his home. He's physically healed the people. He's done all these miraculous things in an attempt to give them every opportunity to believe. And yet the people of Capernaum have rejected Jesus. It's just, just the truth. And know this. I mean, this is really true. Everyone who rejects the lordship of Jesus rejects the grace of Jesus that saves us from sin. 
And that's what Jesus is saying to Capernaum. There are, there are real consequences for how you respond to Jesus. And so we've most recently been reading through Matthew chapter 13. And what's unique about Matthew chapter 13 is that it's this place where, where Jesus has started to talk to the people of Capernaum in parables as opposed to speak to them just clearly. He, he, he's only speaking to them now in parables. He's given them seven parables in Matthew chapter 13. And if you remember back with me to the first parable, it was, it was the parable of the sower. And it was kind of telling the story of Jesus' ministry. He's depicted as going through the countryside and scattering seeds. And, and the seeds represent the proclamation of his kingdom. And they all fall on these different kinds of soils. And these soils, they represent the, the hearts and the different reactions of different men. To, and and so, so the parable of the sower is really about the ministry of Jesus. He's, tra he's traveling throughout Galilee. He's telling people about the kingdom. And here's what's so tragic. Most of the seeds that fall onto soil in this parable will not bear fruit. Right? There's, there, there's several soils listed there, and most of them are bad. And what we begin to understand from this parable is that it is a rare thing. It really is. It is a rare thing when people hear the proclamation of the gospel, and they respond with belief and repentance. And so I tell you all this because it's a summary of where we are in the story to get us moving. And so let me tell you what's next in, in Matthew's gospel. We're going to, as we move to the next few chapters, you're going to witness several stories of how different people respond to Jesus. And that's really the section we're going into. It's almost like he's, here's the parable of the sower, sowing seed onto these different soils. Now look at it in real life. Look at how different people are going to be like these different soils. That's what's going to happen next. And uh, we're going to look at two examples today of how people respond to Jesus. And, and those two examples are um, the people in Nazareth in Jesus' childhood home and uh, a local ruler that we're going to see respond as well. And so we're going to be reading today from Matthew 13, uh, 52 through 14, 12. Friends, uh, it's our tradition to give reverence to the Word of God by standing as we read it together. So I want to invite you, if you're able to stand, to do so now. It's also our understanding that none of us can come to the Word of God and fully understand it if not by uh, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, right? And so before we read, we often or always really pray that the Spirit would help us to understand what we're going to get into. So will you join with me? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we gather as a church around your holy word. And, and Father, it's our prayer that your Spirit would so quicken our hearts that we would understand your word, that we would be filled by it, that we would be empowered by it, that we would be convicted by it and restored by it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do your work in the church. And all God's people said, amen. Well, let's read together, beginning in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. 
And he, not, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised to give an oath, uh, promised an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and they took the body and they buried it. And they went and they told Jesus, Church, the grasses may wither and the flowers may fade. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's begin reading together and talking about this together in, in verse 53. So, so what it says there. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Now listen, Jesus... Jesus is in Capernaum when he's given the parables. He's been there all the way since Matthew chapter 5, and we're at the end of chapter 13. Um, ever since then, he's made Capernaum his home, and he would go and he would leave Capernaum and, and travel and preach in all the different synagogues in the area, but Capernaum was where he lived until, listen, this very moment. He, would, he was going to leave Capernaum after a year of doing ministry there. You need to understand that Capernaum has rejected Jesus Capernaum has rejected his lordship. And friends, make no mistake that Jesus is not, he's not surprised by this. Don't think that he's like, oh, it didn't work. He's, he, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient. He knew this was going to happen. He's not surprised by that. He's been teaching his disciples that suffering and rejected, rejection are to be expected when you proclaim the kingdom. By the way, John the Baptist himself is in prison partially for preaching the gospel of repentance. And so here we find Jesus is leaving Capernaum to go where? He's going to go back to Nazareth. He's going back to his hometown after a year. So look at verse 54. We'll read it together. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So Jesus goes into the small town of Nazareth. And he goes to the local synagogue on the Sabbath, and they obviously know him. You have to know this. They, they know him, they know him, they know him. He grew up in their little worshiping community there. And probably some of these women in there that, that are going to be in there, they probably changed Jesus' diapers. Now, you may not like to think of that, but, it, but it's a real possibility that that's how close this community is to Jesus. And as we look at verse 54, when Jesus teaches in the synagogue, what is the initial the initial reaction of his hometown crowd. It says this, they're astonished. 
It says they're astonished. And like if you were to look up astonishment to understand that word, what does it mean? Astonishment is like, it's like confusion with a hint of being impressed. Right? You're, you're both, you're, you're astonished. You're kind of, you're impressed. You're kind of wowed, but you're also confused. Have you ever been astonished? It's like that moment uh, in The Wizard of Oz when, when Dorothy arrives in the colorful land of Oz and she's surrounded by the munchkins and the yellow brick road and the emerald castle. There is a lot of confusion, right? Mixed with wonderment. Right? That, that's what, confu- that's what uh, being astonished is. It's, it's confusion, confusion and wonderment. And that's what it was like for the people in, the, in this church in Nazareth. They were amazed by Jesus, but they were also confused. And they were asking themselves, like, like, where did little Jesus get this wisdom that he might do these mighty works? They refused to believe the clear and obvious reality that these works came from, from, from God, and they were the badge or the credentials of his authority they, that it proved that he was the Messiah. Sure they, were, sure, they were impressed at one point, but here's the deal. That wonderment never gave birth to faith. Instead, what happens is they get, they get distracted from the signs of God, and instead they get lost in silly, pointless distractions. What are those distractions that the people of Nazareth get lost in? We know his folks. Like, we know his people. How can this be the Messiah? We know him. Look at verses 55 and 56. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Let me try to explain what happened. When the people of Nazareth experienced Jesus... They're, they're initially astonished by him. They're confused and impressed. They are confused by wonder. And, and I told you that Matthew was going to be illustrating in these chapters different responses to Jesus. And this is it. This is their response. This is what you're supposed to see. When, when people encounter Jesus, astonishment is normal. It's like, it's like when people first encounter Jesus, it's like Alice in Wonderland for them. It, 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 it's, like, it's like the yellow brick road. There's so much glory, but wait, so many claims too, right? You see, Jesus is wonderful, but he also makes these, these claims. People are, on the one hand, impressed with Jesus, but then they're saying, wait, you're saying you're the king of, of heaven? You're impressive and all, but... I don't really think you have any authority in my life. This is what people do in the real world. They start with astonishment when they're introduced to Jesus, and one or two things is going to happen. That that astonishment is either going to give birth to faith or it's going to lead to something else, right? Look at verses 56 and 57. Are not all his sisters with, with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. They couldn't make sense of their astonishment, and it gave birth to offense, right? It's what started as astonishment ended in offense. There are a lot of people in this world who will start by being astonished at the majesty of Jesus, amazed by the empty tomb, amazed as Jesus walks on water, but offended when they realize that he calls them to deny themselves and offended when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, right? 
Offense is one of the reactions that people are going to have to Jesus. This is our first story today of how people react to Jesus. Let's look at our second story today of how people react to Jesus. It's interestingly enough, not a section of Scripture where Jesus is the predominant actor. Jesus is not the predominant actor. All the way through Matthew's gospel so far, he has been. But the predominant figure in this section of Scripture is Herod Agrippa. What do you know about Herod Agrippa? Well, this is a, this is a crazy story. So uh, you're going to have to pay attention to me, and you're going to have to be comfortable with a little bit of, of, of family trees without branches that bend, you know? There, there, there's a little uniqueness here going on. So let me introduce you to Herod. In, in the grand scheme of things, people always discuss the relationship between nurture and nature. Are you familiar with this discussion? You are the way you are because you're born that way, or you are the way you are because of experiences in your life. And I look at Herod Agrippa, and I see a guy who, you know, I'm not sure what his, what his nature was, but the nurture of this guy, the way that he was raised must have left him really scarred. You see, Herod Agrippa had a, had a father who was known to us as Herod the Great. I don't know if you remember Herod the Great, but Herod the Great was the one who ordered the death of all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem when he found out through uh, the Magi that there was one to be born who was to be king of the Jews, which was Jesus. Do you remember this? Up in the, There was really Matthew early in the story setting the stage of, of King Jesus. And, and, and here you have Herod Agrippa's father killing all the boys under the age of two in Bethlehem out of paranoia. The older King Herod was known to be a very, very paranoid man. Uh, and, and it's so paranoid that, that if ever one of his children was to look like he was getting too much favor in the eyes of, of the land or people, or, or maybe had too much of a, a thought of a claim of the throne, he would have them killed. He, and he, he murdered many of his own children out of fear that they were going to usurp him. And so imagine you're Herod Agrippa, and you're growing up with this dad who's killing all your brothers because they're getting too big for their britches, right? That's what's happening. There's a popular saying back in those times that it was safer to be Herod the Great's dog than his son. Because if you were a son, you were likely to be killed. But somehow Herod Agrippa survives. Okay, he, he's one of the lucky ones. He gets out. And our story's about him. A, a son of Herod the Great. His brother, uh, Aristobulus, and I may be slaughtering that name, uh, Aristobulus was not so lucky, right? He was also Herod Aristobulus. I think all of them had the first name Herod because uh, Herod the Great was a little bit of a uh, sociopath and egotistical guy. But Arist Aristobius was killed by their dad, uh, but not before he fathered a daughter, okay? He, he had a daughter. And, and Herod Agrippa, the main character in our story, he eventually is going to go get married, and he, he has a very political marriage to an Arabian princess, right? And he, he took for himself the title of king of the Jews. Now, now here's where the story gets scandalous. Remember how I told you that, that Herod's brother had fathered a daughter before he was killed by their dad? The weird thing is, is that that daughter uh, that, that survived her father's death married one of King Herod Agrippa's brothers, Okay, married one of the other brothers. So Herod uh, Antipas' niece marries his brother, her uncle. And as weird as that sounds, uh, the, Herod Agrippa and, and, and his, his brother and, and, and his niece, they would all hang out together. I guess they, began, they had a, you know, kind of a friendship together. They would go do couples things together. And, 
Herod Antipas and his dead brother's daughter, even though they're both married to other people, they decide that they're going to ditch their spouses and they're going to get married themselves. So we're talking about his niece and his brother's wife at the same time, right? And uh, so, so, so this makes this woman, Herodias is her name, it makes Herodias not only Herod's dead brother's daughter, but also his living brother's wife. I just want to see, make, make that make sense. Now, our scripture in verse 14, it's kind of provide, chapter 14, it, it, it's presented in a way that's kind of inverted. And, and here's what I mean. It tells you first about Herod's reaction to Jesus, and then it tells you why. And so what I want to do is I want to start kind of in verses 3 through 4, go on to the end, and then look at his reaction. So let's start talking about this story in, in verse 3. And this is what it says. Uh, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. This is all going to explain why Herod responds the way he does. You have to watch how Herod treated John the Baptist. You see, John was a prophet, and as a prophet of God, John spoke out against the corruption of the government and the corruption of Herod. Now, remember, uh, Herod, at least culturally, is claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's at least claiming to have some relationship to, 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 to the Jews. But, but his choices here are contrary to the commands of God. Look at, look at verse 5. It says this. And though Herod wanted to put John to death, Herod feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. Herod restrains himself from killing John the Baptist because the people are with John. Now, as we know from reading the Gospel of Matthew, John is currently in prison. He's in Herod's dungeon, and he's in Herod's dungeon because he speaks out against the marriage of Herod and his brothers, his dead brother's daughter, living brother's wife, Herodias, right? And, and, and for some reason, uh, Herod does not kill John because he fears the crowd. Until Herod has a birthday party. This is only one of two birthdays mentioned in the Bible. I think we, we, we hear of the birthday of Pharaoh, and now we hear of the birthday of, of Herod. And he throws himself, as you might think, a big birthday party. Look at verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. Now, in order to get your mind right, I need to encourage you to think about this like a crude bachelor party. This is what's happening here. This is like a crude bachelor party. That, that girl's dancing, but she is not doing ballet. The dance would have been seductive. And they normally would have gotten um, slave girls to dance in a manner like this for them. And, and the layers of dysfunction in this situation are, are just simply convoluted, right? This, is, this girl that's going to be dancing is Herod's dead brother's granddaughter. I mean, you start wrapping your head around this. And this is now his stepdaughter, and it's quite possibly his niece. And, and sorry I don't have a chart. I feel like I should have a chart for, for all of, of the dysfunction here. But we know this. This is what we know from the story. Whatever she does, Herod likes it a lot. And he's so fired up by her seductive dance that he offers to give her anything she wants. Look, verses 7 through 8. So, so that he promised an oath to give her whatever she might ask. 
And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You see, there, there had been this stress between uh, Herodias and, and Herod. Um, Herodias had wanted John killed, and yet Herod, fearing the crowd, had, had refused. And uh, you can imagine the marital tension. Herodias just thought, how in the world can you let this prophet say negative things about our marriage? And, uh, and so when given the opportunity to whisper in her daughter's ear, Herodias seeks vengeance, and he, he tells his daughter to ask Herod for the head of John the Baptist. And here is Herod, he's, and he's made this big special spectacle of, of, of granting this wish, and he, he thinks she'll ask for a new pony or a car, and he tells her she can have whatever she wants, he promises that, and, and now in front of all of his fancy friends who had come, his ego won't let him say no. His hand is forced into killing John the Baptist. And look what it says about that in verses 9 through 12. It says this, and the king was sorry. You see, he didn't, he didn't really want to do it. He was, the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, the, 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 the accountability and the shame, he commanded it to be given. He, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to this girl. And she took it to her mother, and the disciples came, and they took Really, uh, um, these would be the disciples of, um, of, of, of John, not the disciples of Jesus. They would come and take the body and they would, they would bury it. What, what a, a really kind of a nice gesture of, of, of Herod there to allow them to do that. And, and probably a fear of the crowd as well. And then they go and they tell Jesus, which is a very nice thing. They go and they tell Jesus. Do you get the feeling, and I want to ask you this, do you, do you get the feeling hearing this story that, that Herod really wanted to have John killed? Yeah, I don't either. He feared the crowds. But I wonder if it's more complicated. Herod, Herod claims to be a Jew, after all, right? And, and, and John is this prophet of God. And so he's got to kind of have this, maybe this just a little bit, a little bit, an inkling of the fear of God in King Herod. And, and a knowledge that killing John would be a sin against the Lord. And I tell this whole story to explore Herod's response to Jesus. This is really what we're building up to. We're looking at two responses to Jesus this morning. We've looked at the people of Nazareth. Now we're going to look at the response of Herod. That's what, that's what Matthew is showing us. I believe this. All right. Uh, what was Herod's response to Jesus? Let's backtrack and read it together. Verses 1 through 2. It says this. And at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. He's hearing rumors. And he says to a servant, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod hears, he hears about everything Jesus is doing in Canaan and Galilee, all these miracles. We, and we said there's a bunch of them. And what's his response? How might you summarize the response we just read? Here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest to you that because of the wicked sin in Herod's life, because of his overwhelming guilt for the murder of John, when Herod encounters Jesus, it appears that his response is a response of, of first confusion, but also mixed in with that as just kind of terror. I believe that, that, that deep down, Herod is terrified of Jesus. And, and, I, and I say this, kind of thinking through it is, can you imagine Herod's imagination after he killed John? You ever, you ever wonder, like, 
not wanting to do that, being kind of put in that situation where he's forced to, and, and calling himself at least king of the Jews. And if he even had a little bit of fear of God, do you think he ever pondered how God might respond to him murdering God's prophet? It kind of, I kind of have this kind of like Macbeth feeling in my mind when I think about this, that maybe it was that Herod was up all night hearing voices going, God, leave me alone. And then now... He hears that there's this other man. And and just like John, Jesus is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I have no idea if John the Baptist and Jesus look similarly. I know that they're cousins. But what's more is that this Jesus, he's got these supernatural powers. And a confused Herod thinks Jesus is John reincarnated. And Herod's so eaten up with guilt and shame that his reaction to Jesus, I, I, I would suggest, is a reaction of fear. And you might ask me, like, why would... Why would Herod fear Jesus? And I would suggest to you that Jesus threatened Herod's power. Herod's father, after all, recognized this. He was the one who slaughtered countless boys just for this reason because Jesus was a threat to his power. Secondly, I think Herod was terrorized because of Jesus was because the rumors of Jesus reminded Herod of his, of his own horrible guilt. And, and, and there was this sin that Herod was kind of trying to keep in the darkness and hide. And now with Jesus coming forward, it, it threatened to shine light on what he had done. And, and I think the third reason that Jesus terrorized Herod was that Jesus was preaching repentance and, and that Herod was completely opposed to repentance. And Herod had no desire to repent of his marriage to Herodias this was the message of repentance that led Herod to imprison John in the first place. And um, these are two interesting stories that we've read today about how people respond to Jesus. Specifically, how do people respond to, to his gospel message? That the king of heaven has come. That's what Jesus is teaching. The king of heaven is coming, that Jesus is king, and his call is to repent and believe in him and to to follow him with your very life and to give up everything that gets in the way. That's what we've been reading in these parables, right? The parable of uh, of the pearl of great worth, that you would give up everything that gets in the way to follow him. And I want to suggest to you that when some people hear this gospel message of the kingship of, of Jesus, they respond like the people of Nazareth. They're astonished at Jesus. They're, they're wowed but confused. And, and being wowed but confused, they, they hear these continued claims of Jesus' lordship and, and claims to give up everything, and eventually they're offended by him. That's one way in which people respond to Jesus. And other people respond to the message of Jesus' kingship much more like King Herod. To them, Jesus is threatening, and, and Jesus is almost terrorizing because they want to rule their own kingdom. And when Jesus comes, he comes heralding righteousness. He comes calling his people to live by the word of God. And some people, when they encounter that, what they feel is guilt and shame to the point of terror and hatred of Jesus. The unfortunate truth is some people reject Jesus because they hate his ways. And they fear the conviction that his word brings. Let me end by saying this today, friends. Um, The call of the Holy Spirit upon you this morning, upon you, is this. The call is to respond to the kingship of Jesus in your life. Jesus wants to rule and reign in your life. He wants you to give up that throne that you sit on by which you decide what's right and wrong and bend the knee and submit to his word and his will. What that means is acknowledging his lordship with your mouth, 
and rejecting the sinful ways of your life. So my question is, how are you going to respond to Jesus this morning? Will wonder and confusion and astonishment lead to you eventually taking offense at Jesus because Jesus just asks too much? Or will your fear of his rule in your life keep you from giving everything up to follow him? I want to tell you that your response to Jesus is the most important thing in the world. Choose for you this day who will be king in your heart. Church, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We believe it's what we need to be fed by, to be shaped by, to do its work of conviction as we have to ask ourselves, are we like the people of Nazareth, so offended by what you ask and who you say you are? Are we like King Herod, terrified of your rule in our life? Father, be gracious to us. Send your spirit to plow the soil of our hearts that we might be good soil and respond by bending the knee and proclaiming with our lips that Jesus is Lord. Christ, I pray that today in your church you were honored by your people. We pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said, amen.